It's such a privilege to be with you again today. I bring greetings from Orland Park Christian Reformed Church. We consider it such a blessing to be in partnership with you in the uh, revitalizing and renewing of the ministry here in the beginning of a new chapter. And I know it has made many uh, persons in our congregation excited to think about ways in which they can uh, play a part in this uh, very uh, interesting, very challenging time. So we're excited with you and we're praying with you uh, for God's blessing on your congregation and also on uh, Kaylee and Sabrina Mesa as they come here in order to do the ministry. And we also appreciate greatly all that you and your leaders have done here in order to sustain things. We've been inspired by your commitment. And so may God bless all of you. As I thought about what to preach on today, of course, we have the national holiday, Memorial Day. And there are texts that one could preach on and themes that one could connect to that. But then there is a little remembered church event, or I should say event in the life of Christ, which uh, we haven't celebrated ever too much as Americans, but it's actually a national holiday in many countries in Europe, and that is Ascension Day. Ascension Day was celebrated this last Thursday. Uh, Christian Reformed churches used to have a special service on that day, but with time it just kind of fell away. But the Ascension of Christ is a very important event in the life of the church, in the life of Christ. And the Apostle Paul actually makes extensive use of it in the book of Ephesians. So that's where we'll be, we will be focusing most of our attention this morning. So the one we celebrate today is not only one who died for us, he rose for us, and he is seated at the right hand of God for us, and the Bible says we are seated there with him in some mysterious way because we are in Christ. So our scripture readings this morning, first a very brief uh, recollection of the ascension from the Gospel of Luke, chapter uh, 24, verses 50 to 53, and then our text for the morning from Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16. First from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24, verse 50. And he, meaning Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple blessing God. And then from Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16, the Apostle Paul says there, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to man or to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth. 
He who ascended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's join in prayer together. Father in heaven, as we open your word today, may we be spoken to by your Holy Spirit. We pray that these words may become your words to each one of us, that we may grasp the profundity, the great spiritual truth found in them, that we may be strengthened and guided by them, and that we may be like those early believers who saw Christ ascend, that we may worship you and be filled with joy. All this we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. When my parents lived in South America, my parents often spoke about the coal porters. Now, I always wondered what that word meant, coal porter. Well, I looked it up, and it's the French word for peddler. But the dictionary also includes another definition, which is the one my parents were referring to. A coal porter in those years was a person who went around distributing Bibles in Christian tracts. Well, I don't know if my father realized it, but even though he was always talking about the coal porters out there, my father himself was a coal porter. He was devoted to spreading Christian literature through South America and later through Mexico in order to help the Christians and the churches grow. Now, what this meant for our family was that my father had to travel a lot. Sometimes he would be gone a month at a time. And I remember that as he traveled through those various countries we lived in, Chile, Uruguay, Mexico, that before he left, he would gather us kids around. There were five of us. And they would, he would say, especially to me, remember, Dan, while I'm gone, you're the man of the house. Take good care of everybody. I was the oldest son, so I was the recipient of that speech. I remember that even though I was six years old when I first heard that speech, that it always made me feel, you know, very grown up. And it laid on me the sense of responsibility. When dad was gone, I was going to have to behave. When dad was gone, I was going to have to help mom. When dad was gone, I was going to have to be responsible so that when dad returned, he would be pleased with what I had done. Now, as I think of the meaning of Christ's ascension to heaven, I like to think of it in these terms. The ascension of Christ means that we have to grow up, that we have to step up and take responsibility. 
Jesus, uh, at his ascension, begins the process of entrusting to his disciples the responsibility for carrying on his mission in the world. They were to continue his teaching. They were to continue the nurture and care that he offered to people. Uh, the ministry of healing, the ministry of feeding the hungry. And so the ascension is a very, very important theme in the Bible. It is especially important in the book of Ephesians. And in Ephesians 1, verse 20, we read that God seated Jesus at, the, at his right hand in the heavenly realms. And then according to the last part of Ephesians 1, Jesus was given this place of authority for the sake of his body, the church. And in chapter 2, verse 6, we learn that Christians have been seated with Jesus in the heavenly realms or in the heavenly places. Now, what does this mean in concrete terms? I know when I was a kid, this thing, man, the height of abstraction, you know, was this book of Ephesians with these kinds of statements, seated with Christ in the heavenly realms. Well, at the very least, it means that we share in Christ's identity, and we share in the benefits of Christ's finished work on the cross and his death and resurrection. We are secure. We have been saved. But it also means that we share in Christ's mission. And we ought to share also in the care that Jesus has for his church and the desire that Jesus continues to have to nurture his flock. Jesus loves his church, and so should we. Now, after explaining that Christ's ascension serves the church, the apostle goes on in order to speak about one of the very, very important goals that Jesus strove for that we all should strive for. And that goal is unity in the church. We know that before Jesus suffered, that he gave this high priestly prayer that we have in John 17, and the focus of that prayer is that we would be one. I don't know if you know, but the word diabolos, the Spanish word for the devil, the Latin word for the devil, means divider. And of course, what Satan wants to do among Christians is divide them, because when you divide people, you weaken them. But God's goal for his church is to unify us, and one of the important or central goals that Paul connects to the ascension of Christ is the unity of the church. So in the second chapter of Ephesians, we're working our way toward the fourth, he points out that the special laws that distinguish Jews from Gentiles should no longer divide them. Gentiles, that's us, is a word that means nations. We had been separated from the life of God's people because they had been distinguished by very special laws, laws like circumcision, laws related to food. But now those have been set aside. And so Ephesians explains how the old-timer citizens of God's kingdom have been joined to us, new immigrants, into one new person. What the ascension of Christ essentially does is fulfill the promise that God had given to Abraham which was that he would be a blessing to all nations. And as Jesus ascends to heaven, 
And then on Pentecost, which we'll celebrate next week, since his Holy Spirit upon his apostles, these apostles proclaimed the gospel in every language represented there at the time. Now, when we read the book of Ephesians, we may be tempted to impatiently skim the principles so that we can get to the practical application. It's a little bit like we do with the American Constitution. Everybody talks, you know, respectfully of the Constitution, but most people probably couldn't tell you a thing about it, except for that part called the Bill of Rights. That's what we Americans like, the Bill of Rights. What does this Constitution entitle us to? And so when we think about Christian teaching, we sometimes refer to doctrine. That generally is teaching about, you know, who God is, what the meaning of Christ's sacrifice on the cross was. And we say, doctrine is fine and good, but what I really like is some advice for daily living. Well, that brings us to chapter 4 of the book of Ephesians. But notice that what follows the doctrine of Christ's ascension is not a bill of rights, but a list of responsibilities. What responsibilities has Christ entrusted to us now that he has ascended to the right hand of God? And the primary responsibility is that we are to foster, we are to nurture the unity of the church. Let's go back to Ephesians 2 a moment, which speaks of the great price that Jesus paid to unify Jews and Gentiles, people from all nations and backgrounds, many of those represented here this morning. Verses 14 to 16 of Ephesians 2 says, For he, meaning Jesus, himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross thereby killing the hostility what was the price of our unity? The death of Christ. Christ died in order to end all of this hostility, which we see being expressed across the world and in our community between human beings. Hostility often based on race or gender or social class or any other thing that human beings can possibly think to divide on. Christ came, his death was aimed at destroying that hostility and that alienation. And so our duty as Christians now is to do everything that we can in the power of the Spirit to preserve that unity. Paul's teaching in Ephesians 4 can be summarized in three sentences. The first is that unity begins with Christ-like attitude. The second is that unity is grounded in the central truths of Scripture. And finally, unity is nourished by the exercise of the gifts given to us by our ascended Lord. Wherever there is 
disunity in the church, you will always find a lack of Christ-like attitudes. When we begin to go our separate ways, it's because we've given up on the basic Christian virtues of patience and forbearance and perseverance. And all of a sudden, other things like our own opinion or getting our own way or selfish pride rise up and lead to conflict. So Paul begins by bringing our attention back to the central concern of God. He says Christians are called to live at peace with other Christians. We are to live a life worthy of the calling which God has given us. And Paul urges us to live this way as a prisoner of the Lord. Well, what does being a prisoner of the Lord have to do with anything? Well, why was Paul a prisoner? Well, he was a prisoner because he had worked to bring this kind of reconciliation between Jews and Gentiles. As he preached the gospel, he had tried to bring these two groups of people together who were divided by so many cultural and religious issues. And, of course, because he did that, his fellow Jews saw him as a destroyer of the faith, and they had him arrested. So Paul's message of the unity of Jews and Gentiles cost him his freedom. He paid a very high price for preaching about this gospel that brings people together and reconciles them. But it also, this imprisonment, gave him moral authority. Moral authority to teach us and all Christians about the importance of unity and about doing everything in our power in order to promote it and preserve it. Now, any of us who are familiar with the Apostle Paul's writings know that he was a fighter when it came to important Christian truths. Yet, he reminds us of the importance of Christ-like attitudes as we carry on the struggle. He says in verses 2 to 3 of Ephesians 4, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now we know that promoting certain kinds of Christian obedience can create stress among Christians. It can lead to divisions. Looking back at the past, we see how uh, a church that tried to be mission-minded. William Carey, when he first came forward, said, you know, we have to go out there and do Christian missions. That this created divisions. He had people say to him, you know, when the Lord wants to save the heathen, he'll do it in his own good time. He doesn't need our help. We know that the fight to eliminate slavery created divisions in churches in this nation. In our time, calling the church to defend the unborn or to protect the disabled, or to promote just laws or kindness to immigrants or a biblical view of human sexuality, this can create divisions. Calling people to Christian obedience can create stress inside the church. But what Paul tells us here is that as we promote Christian obedience, that we must do it in a Christ-like way. We must do it in Christian love 
because if we don't, we are going to harm Christian unity. As a kid, I saw the missionaries get together for their yearly conferences. And it struck me, when I got to be old enough to understand what was going on, that there was a lot of arguing that went on at these missionary conferences. I thought it was because Christian Reformed people were especially prone to argue. I just thought part of their character. I heard once there was 32 different political parties in Holland, and I go, ah, there we go. That's the reason. But then in college, I did some reading about missionaries from other churches. And I found out that missionaries of other denominations and Christian churches and persuasions were just as bullheaded and had just as many conflicts. And then I read the Bible and remembered that Paul and Barnabas had trouble getting along. Well, what's going on? Well, missionaries may be especially prone to disagree because they have devoted themselves to persuading people to change their minds, to turn away from a belief in idols to a belief in the true God. And religious beliefs are some of the most deeply rooted beliefs in the human heart, and the hardest to uproot. So you have to be a determined person. You have to be very sure of yourself. You have to have a deep conviction that what you believe is the truth as you persuade others. But here's where the danger comes in, is that when you are sure of yourself about the gospel, you can become sure of yourself about every opinion you hold. You can begin to think that every idea, every uh, opinion you have is absolute truth. And so we have the call here in Ephesians to temper our promotion of the truth of the gospel with humility and gentleness and patience and a resolve to maintain Christian unity. Because unless we are willing to bear one, with one another in love as we do the work of the church, and I know that what's coming here too, there are bound to be some changes, you get new leadership and go in a new direction, you're going to need to have this fundamental devotion to Christian unity as different opinions arise as to how to handle the new situations that will come. But if you handle these differences in, with the Christian virtues that the Apostle Paul recommends here, these Christ-like attitudes, you are very likely to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So that's our first point. True Christian unity begins with Christ-like attitudes. The second point is that Ephesians 4 shows us that true Christian unity is grounded in the central truths of Scripture. So often what divides Christians is not the central truths of Scripture. I remember in a church I served out in Iowa, a fellow pastor was telling me, oh yeah, there was a split in our church down a few years back, 20 years or so. He says, I think it was over the color of the tassels on the curtain. Some wanted blue and some wanted red. And you know, if you look back in the history of the church, you can see divisions over all kinds of things which were not central to the faith. The two things that must anchor every Christian church are, of course, the ones Paul mentions here, 
understood in the context of the gospel. He speaks of the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And he stresses belief in one body of believers. What's interesting is that the, in the history of the church, I don't think there's ever been a disagreement about there being one true God. Now, it did take the church about 400 years to come to a clear understanding of the relationship of the three persons of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but it was always done under the unified confession that there is one true God. But what the church has had trouble with down through the centuries is believing that there is one united Christian church, one holy and universal church. Christians have splintered and split a great deal since Jesus prayed that high priestly prayer there in John 17. But Jesus knew this. That's why he prayed that prayer. And that's why the Apostle Paul comes as he teaches about the ascension of Christ. He prays that believers may maintain unity in the Spirit in the bond of peace. To promote unity in the church, we have to deeply believe that Christ has only one body. Remember, the reformers of the 16th century did not want to divide the church. They had read 1 Corinthians 3, where it says, if anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. And of course, it's a reference to the church there, the God's temple. They wanted to maintain the unity of the church. They wanted to reform the church. They didn't want to split it up. But of course, sometimes those who are in charge or in power are denying fundamental doctrines of the faith. And so, unfortunately, this fragmentation has come. But we have to remember that Christ has only one body. And that body is founded on this very important central teaching that we have here in Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, that salvation is a gift of God given us through faith in Christ. And this body, Paul says here in Ephesians 4, shares one baptism in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Those of you who have come in as members of this church uh, have likely learned that if you were baptized prior to joining here in the name of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that you don't need to be rebaptized. We don't require rebaptism. Why not? Because we believe that there is one holy and universal church. And those who worship the triune God, those who have been baptized in the name of the triune God, that baptism marks them as part of that family if they are people of true Christian faith. So it's this common faith in Jesus our Savior that unites us. So the unity of the church begins with Christ-like attitudes. It's based on these central truths of Scripture, one God, one church, based upon the belief that our salvation comes to us through faith in Christ alone. And then last, this unity is built by exercising the gifts that are given to us by, by our ascended Lord. What our text shows us is that unity is not only a reality, something that Christ has won for us, but unity is also a goal. We have unity in Christ, but it's like an immature 
infant. And we have to nurture this unity. We have to feed this unity so that it grows. Now going back to that illustration of my father's travels, I remember that when he went away, it meant that we were going to get presents. Now we always had to wait till my dad got home, and then he'd we, you know, we'd hug him, and that was all great, but we were looking at that suitcase because we, we knew that in that suitcase there were some presents. Well, here we are told that we don't have to wait till Christ's return for his presence, that when he ascended to heaven, he gave us his presence. And what are those presents? Well, I hope we're not disappointed. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. What's the importance of these presents? Well, these are the persons, these are the roles that God has given in his church in order to promote unity. Think about this. When the apostles began their ministries, already there were those who started to idolize certain ones of them or elevate certain ones. Remember in 1 Corinthians 3, why well, I follow Apollos, I follow Paul, I follow Cephas or Peter. Already there was the temptation in the early church for personality cults to form, for Christian leaders to create their own little kingdom. But what they are reminded of here is that all of these gifts are given in order to build the one true church of Christ and have it unified in him. That is what we ought to aim for. Now those early apostles showed them themselves to be true apostles of Christ because they continually directed people back to Christ and did not go off and create their own little cult. Those apostles and teachers understood the precious doctrine of the unity of the church and they devoted themselves to it. Now, we still exercise many of these gifts uh, either as individual Christians or in an official role in the church. And what we ought to remember that if we have been given the gift of proclaiming God's word or evangelizing others, of pastoring others, of teaching others, that we are to do it with a view of bringing them into the unity of the body of Christ. Unity with Christ and with his people. Paul says that using God's gifts helps the church mature. What is the purpose of these gifts? Often we hear when people talk about, you know, gifts of teaching or nurturing the church. Oh, you know, we got to help people uh, accomplish personal spiritual growth. But what does Paul say? He says that these gifts ought to be used to prepare us for works of service. We ought to be using our gifts to prepare each other in order to serve God and others. The, the emphasis is external not internal. The ministry of the church should create Christians who are well-grounded in Christ and growing in Christ. When I think back over the last 40 years, which is now uh, possible for me as I get into my mid-60s, and I've been in ministry a long time, I think about all the spiritual fads that have come and gone in the church. In the 1970s, as I was growing up, the charismatic movement was sweeping through Mexico. And then, of course, we had liberation theology and tele-evangelism and seeker-sensitive church movements and the emerging church. 
God gives the gifts that are mentioned here to the leadership of the church to keep us from being blown around by every wind of doctrine. Now, there were good things in those movements, but often they became divisive. And the whole point of Christ's ascension is to give gifts that then should nurture us in unity so that we draw closer to God, closer to each other, because we are devoted to Christ. The Apostle Paul summarizes the great secret of unity when he says this, and this is my final and very brief point. I'm going to say it again. Paul summarizes the great secret of unity when he says, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. What does it mean to speak the truth in love? I think all of my life I thought it means criticizing other people with a smile on your face. But that's not what it means. Speaking the truth in love in this context means to teach the truths of the Christian faith with humility and gentleness, and patience, and forbearance. We should never try to bully a person into being a Christian or into growing as a Christian. We shouldn't be harsh. We shouldn't ever be hateful. We should promote the truths of the Christian faith in a winning way, in a way that would bring honor to Christ, who is such a patient, and gentle shepherd of his sheep. So we have to radiate confident faith, but we have to temper it with gentleness and humility. So the great message of Christ's ascension to us is this, that grace has been given to each of us. A gift has been given to each of us. And we have to discover what that gift is. And when we do, we have to use it in order to nurture unity in the body of Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this great call as we remember the ascension of Christ, that we remember our identity in him who is seated in heavenly realms, and that here on earth we carry out his work, especially the work of holding together that body that you are saving. Help us, Lord, to do that in the spirit of Christ, with the Christ-like attitudes he taught. Help us to promote the fundamental truths of one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and one holy and universal church. And finally, help us to identify and use the gifts that you have given to us. We pray this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.